Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is a place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and the way that we will harness natural resources to meet our future energy needs. My name is Lee Madigan, Head of Communications at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading technology innovation and research centre for the offshore renewable energy industry. Today, we're widening the focus of our lens to discuss the UK's green economic recovery and the opportunity presented by offshore renewables. I'm joined by an August panel from across our industry to help us examine the question from a policy, technology and social opportunity viewpoint. Hello, I'm Baroness Brown of Cambridge, Julia Brown. I'm Vice Chair of the Committee on Climate Change and Chair of its Adaptation Committee and non-executive director of the Offshore Renewable Energy Capital and sector champion for the Offshore Wind Sector Deal. Hi, I'm Andrew Hodgson. I'm the chair of the Northeast Local Enterprise Partnership. I'm also the chair of the Skills Advisory Panel for the Northeast of England. Um, I'm a businessman who is chair of an electric vehicle component manufacturing business with uh, previous experience in the offshore energy sector um, and also in the aerospace sector. Hello, I am Melon Hion. I'm the Deputy Chief Executive at Renewable UK, formerly the Member of Parliament for Great Grimsby, with a specific interest in uh, offshore wind, because in my former constituency, where I still live, there was uh, a huge amount of activity and build that took place, um, and that's what led to my interest in, in this area of work. Hi everyone, I'm Steve Wyatt. I'm the Director of Research and Innovation at ORE Catapult. I'm responsible for a portfolio of um, forward-looking initiatives such as uh, looking next-generation turbines, energy system integration, as well as looking after some of our regional activity. I'm also a board member on the Offshore Wind Growth Partnership. Thank you all. So the UK government has recently announced a policy of building back green. If I could start with Baroness Brown, just your initial thoughts on, on what that means and what that might look like. Uh, well, for me, we're going to need uh, a lot of investment in order to maintain and, and build and create new jobs and bring us out of this um, recession associated with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And I think, you know, as far as possible, all of that investment should be focused on green. It should be focused on um, reducing our CO2 emissions, but also it should be focused on on making us more resilient to the climate change that is coming. Even if we meet net zero, we need to recognise uh, we will still be seeing some significant changes in our climate, and we need to make the UK a country that's resilient to those changes as well. So I think there are lots of opportunities to do that, um, but I think it's really crucial that's where investment is focused. There should be no difference between building back the recovery and the green recovery. They should be one and the same thing. Andrew, what's your thoughts? I mean, I think what we've seen is that uh, there has been a general trend, I guess, to, to green or carbon development. But what we've seen through, through COVID is a disruption of just about every market um, and this has kind of accelerated the opportunity for the pace of change and therefore we should be grabbing hold of that disruption and making sure that as we build out of that disruption that we build towards future technology and not uh, fall into the trap of going back to old technology which is difficult for for politicians because it does mean taking some industries with who 
we're probably in long-term structural decline and, and accelerating that decline, but making sure that we rapidly replace those opportunities with things that are focused on a future cleaner, greener world. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's an easy throwaway line, I think, to talk about building a, a green recovery and, and building that greener because the emergency response to COVID, I, I don't feel like it has embraced everything that it could have done. The pandemic felt like an opportunity to be able to reset how we operate as a, as a country, um, take the government's really positive commitments around trying to achieve net zero and some of the conversations that have been coming out around a greener, cleaner economy. And some of the policies that have come out seem to be in direct opposition or certainly hindering the ability to achieve the, the targets that were set before. So I think that there is a lot more that could be done and there is a huge opportunity. And I think that people's ways of working through uh, coronavirus have demonstrated that there will be a shift in the future. The government probably needs to recognise that that shift has happened. And as much as they're pushing for a new normal, their push seems to be going to the old normal and failing to recognise that there has been a change, that people have um, altered their working lives over the last three or four months, um, and that we can re-stimulate the economy in a completely different way to try and match that. I think is a bit of a missed opportunity um, uh, from my perspective. I'd hoped, and there may well still be more to come uh, from the government, but I'd hoped as part of the fiscal stimulation package from the Chancellor that we would see a little bit more than the, the ideas that we have had, I think in the, the mid 2000s about giving grants to homeowners um, to insulate their homes. Yes, there is a benefit. I can see that it will give a quick cash injection to the economy, that there is scope for businesses to grow off the back of that. But uh, I think that the past examples of how that worked in, in that period of time was that it was not the most successful uh, way to get that long-term issue around how people uh, have energy efficient homes, for example, it isn't the best way to tackle that and it doesn't go far enough. So I think that there are definitely promising signs and there's a lot more that we can all uh, work towards achieving. Um, so hopefully we will see more good things coming in, uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Some interesting points and hopefully we'll explore some of those in a bit more of a detail as, as we go through the discussion. Steve, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I guess that, um, like anything, if, if you're trying to rebuild something, you do it with the best available knowledge in a forward-facing way. And I think the, the economy is no different. And that really does point to using the opportunity to accelerate the transition to a low-carbon economy. I think Melanie has highlighted the tension here, which is the temptation for a short-term shot in the arm for the economy versus longer-term, more strategic decisions that will undoubtedly be better in the medium to long term. I think that's probably the tension we're going to explore here today. Thank you all for that. Um, yes, I think, I think probably the next area that we go in, we'll, we'll pick up on, on some of those points that you've, that you've all made. There has obviously been some big hopes pinned on our post-COVID opportunity to potentially reshape our world, certainly in a way that accelerates us towards net zero, and perhaps you know, a different or a 
a better way of living. So what opportunities do you see coming from the green recovery and, and coming from the, the building back green uh, strategy? Uh, Julie, if I could start with you. Just on the issue of insulating homes, I will disagree slightly with Melanie, actually, because I think that the Chancellor announced um, something for building, something of the order of three billion uh, over the coming year. Uh, and whilst, you know, uh, that's, that's an extraordinary shot in the arm, in one of the areas that is most important for us in terms of meeting net zero, because buildings has been a really challenging area in terms of reducing emissions. Um, and it's an area that, it's a thing that creates jobs all around the country. Um, it addresses the increase or the, the lack of progress in buildings. Um, it gives people homes where their heating bills will be smaller and it creates jobs in the UK. So from, from a, actually from an economic stimulus perspective and a net zero perspective, that's a very good measure. It's only a short-term measure and we need to know what comes next. But I think actually the government should be given credit for that. Um, and yes, it's only part of the 9 billion that we'd been t told of in the, in the government's manifesto for improving buildings. But actually given the short time scale, it's a potentially a, a huge stimulus. So I think that's, that's very positive. But I think actually I'd also think that in the short to medium term, speeding up the implementation of low carbon electricity is, is a good thing to be doing. Um, if we're going to meet net zero by 2050, we probably need to increase the size of our electricity system by at least a factor of two. So that target of you know, 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, um, let's get on with it. Let's, you know, let's, have, let's pull forward some more auctions. Let's take the cap off the auctions. We know how quickly offshore wind can be implemented. And we know how cheaply the prices are now coming in. So I certainly think that could be accelerated. And it's not, it's not something we can do tomorrow to create jobs, but it, it's certainly for the medium term. And I also think, you know, we know we're going to need to build this hydrogen economy. We're hearing a huge number of announcements from Europe and elsewhere about what they're going to be doing on hydrogen. We're very well placed to do hydrogen in the UK, both blue hydrogen from methane with carbon capture and storage and green hydrogen from offshore wind or other renewables and, and electrolysis. So let's get moving on that. And actually, I think we can get moving most quickly on the green hydrogen um, because uh, it doesn't create any additional emissions and we have a really good supply base in the UK from the offshore wind perspective but also companies like ITM in the, the PEM electrolyzer area um, and other, other innovative companies and then companies like Wright Bus desperate to make hydrogen buses in, in Northern Ireland. So you know there's lots of win-win-wins from starting to get that, uh, that part of the new economy up and running and looking to create jobs for people who may have worked in, for example, oil and gas and, and other sectors, which are probably going to be declining over time. My head's now stuck on the issue about homes, um, because I think that it feels like that was a, a lot of focus on one issue and where we need, and there is an opportunity, for example, for rolling out infrastructure for increased electrification in the country. So if we are to see um, a big change in our vehicle use over the next five or ten years, for example, where is the infrastructure? And I thought that there was an opportunity for 
government to say we will put that infrastructure in place um, and we can roll that out through local government and it will also have additional employment benefits across the whole of the country. Um, so it's not to take away from that initiative. I just didn't think it was as um, innovative or uh, thinking outside the box as much as it could have been. But in terms of, of opportunities, I think that there are there are so many innovative companies um, operating around the country already. I think that when it comes to offshore wind, um, Renewable UK have just released a, a report in relation to speeding up the green recovery and the role that, uh, that the offshore wind can play in that. Um, and there are so many different areas. I agree with Baroness Brown, absolutely. Um, lifting the capacity caps when it comes to auction is absolutely essential. Um, I think that we've got, we've identified something like 3.4 gig of shovel ready projects around the country that could be up and running really quickly. We've uh, just also released a vision report which talks about the potential for hydrogen in the country. Also looking at where government could invest in improved infrastructure um, and looking at an increasingly supportive route to market for tidal stream and wave technology as well. Andrew, if I could bring you in just uh, from a business point of view, you, you obviously mentioned um, at the start about some of the sectors that have, have suffered during COVID and just interested from a business point of view, what the opportunities might be for those supply chains to get involved and benefit from the green recovery. And then Steve, if I could ask you to come in um, just on some of the specific initiatives that the industry has in place to try and help those businesses access the, the green recovery opportunities. So, Andrew, if we could come to you first just on the business opportunities that might be coming out of the, the green recovery. Obviously, businesses need to respond to, to the future market opportunity. There's no doubt about that. And if you look um, right across um, the north, so if we talk about levelling leveling up opportunities, the opportunities that reside in, in the north, for example, are significant because, first of all, on the energy integration perspective, which often doesn't get talked about, we're probably uniquely positioned to have multiple feeds of energy from interconnects, from offshore wind, through nuclear, as well as more traditional, um, or more, more traditional sources of energy, and, and including biomass. So we've got the challenges and we've got the test bed for those but for those opportunities. When you start drilling down to specific sectors and how they support that, um, I mean, the first one that I would talk about is oil and gas. The oil and gas industry clearly has got challenges. We've got a historically mature uh, North Sea sector, but the North Sea sector has led the world from a technology perspective, and we can apply those technologies equally well within the offshore renewables space, within the interconnector space, um, you know, an example I always use is SMD, which I was the chief executive of. In the time I was chief executive, between 2009 and 2015, we went from uh, being 80% oil and gas uh, business to a 10% oil and gas business with about 60% into the offshore renewables market and, and grew by a factor of three in that time. So we became a significant player. Um, so that's an example of what can happen in that space. If you look then into other forms of manufacturing, Again, if I think about my own northeast, we have the we're in terms of volume of vehicles. The northeast of England is the the largest region for volume of vehicles manufactured in the UK. Um, clearly, heavily focused around the Nissan plant. Um, but again, with our history of electrification and electric vehicles, 
we're seeing a, a strong shift towards that and, and, and the LEP is putting in infrastructure to ensure that the supply chains in those spaces uh, can actually engage and understand. Now, maybe the, some of those traditional businesses might find that difficult. So uh, obviously if you're an engine manufacturer, that's a big transitional change. But actually, if you're in every other part of that supply chain, there are major opportunities. Julia mentioned, for example, right bus on hydrogen buses, um, a business that I chair, again, based in Cramlington, we're working on the gearboxes that make electric motors gearboxes to deal with that very kind of hydrogen challenge of how do you convert hydrogen through a gearbox into motive power. So I think all, each of those sectors are important. I think we shouldn't lose sight of the digital sector in this. So we could talk about hardware, but obviously how we connect all of this together in a smart way requires a strong digital infrastructure and investments in the digital space are equally important. And we shouldn't forget that it's easy to fall back into the hardware dis discussions without understanding the underpinning importance of, the, of, of software. So I think right across our major sectoral strengths, there are great opportunities for businesses who are prepared to be first movers or disruptors, but they need to be supported. So for me, it's a connection between the engineering and the hardware businesses, be they oil and gas or be they in the automotive space or be they, be they them in the electrical engineering space. It's the digital technology and it's the financial community all coming together to make a holistic response to it. But I think we can do that. I mean, the, the thing I like about the North, by the way, is that we're a small enough community that we can actually get together and make that happen. Um, and we should play to that strength. Steve, just picking up on Andrew's point about the support available, what, what support is kind of government and industry putting in place to try and support these supply chain companies to access the, the green recovery opportunities? I think there are a few things. I mean, in the short term, what we've seen is a pretty positive response from organisations like Innovate UK and the research councils who are responsible for funding the universities. And we're seeing a good recognition of some of the short-term issues that, for example, SMEs will be facing um, due to COVID. And so ability to change project scopes, ability to extend the projects and cope with that, frankly, to shore up the sort of the innovation ecosystem and universities are receiving support on research through the research councils. So that's the sort of short-term measure. I think longer term, what we'll see is the government comprehensive spending review later this year having hopefully a stronger greener flavor and thinking about how we're rebuilding our economy and more sort of applied investment into these growth areas and we should remind ourselves that you know offshore wind is a market that's set to treble maybe even quadruple over the next decade so what, what better platform for economic growth you know there aren't many other as stable progressive industries and, and sectors as offshore wind just now and i suppose it's also worth mentioning the offshore wind growth partnership which has got a particular focus on boosting the offshore wind supply chain and we're particularly interested in looking at how we get organizations and companies from other sectors such as aerospace and automotive oil and gas even and how we can get those companies from those supply chains into the offshore wind sector. So the OWGP can help those companies pivot into that tremendous growth sector for the future. Julie, if I could come to you, we've spoken there about um, the business opportunities from the green recovery, but looking at academia, how do we ensure that our academic institutions and our universities are able to take advantage of some of these opportunities that are coming through? 
I think our, our academic institutions are very eager to do that. I don't think um, there's very much that uh, that we need to do other than make sure that that UKRI has enough funding um, and a really good strategy that's about supporting the energy transition. I think universities and young people are, are actually desperate to be uh, engaged in this. I think they're very excited by it. I think we should be, as ever, doing more to engage universities with, with industry and, and companies. Um, I think we have some challenges in that on the offshore wind side, you know, the OEMs tend to be overseas and the developers are not UK companies. So there's sometimes a frustration that, you know, people doing research on um, new materials or, or new structures for these huge offshore wind turbine blades uh, are finding it hard to understand who the customer for for those interests might be because that customer might be Siemens or it, you know, it might be Japanese because we haven't got a UK OEM in this area. So I think in part it's making sure universities are aware of actually all the exciting companies in the supply chain who actually are also doing some very exciting research. It's just not on quite such a, perhaps on quite such a visually sort of impressive scale as some of the, um, you know, some of the really big offshore wind structures. But, you know, that's something that the Catapult is now getting very good at doing, which is, you know, working with, with universities like the University of Hull uh, and helping to engage them with the supply chain community around the offshore wind developments. Uh, and I think it's really crucial that we focus on young people. I mean, who are the people who are going to see the worst impacts of climate change? Well, they're not, they're not Andrew and me. They're Steve's new daughter. When she grows up, she is going to be seeing the impacts of, of you know, one and a half, possibly even two plus degrees of warming, and they will be huge. So these are the generations who are going to have to cope with our mistakes. But they're also our young people at the moment who are, who are coming to finishing their college courses and finishing their degrees. They're the people who are being most hit by COVID and who may find it really hard to get jobs. And we know that if you don't get a job when you leave college or you leave university, you have a period of unemployment, then we know from research that's likely to impact you throughout your life and impact your earnings potential and how successful your career is. So I think we need a huge focus in our recovery on those young people. And I would be really keen to see uh, all of our, our green technology industries looking at where they can be taking on apprentices um, and where they can be taking on new graduates who are so keen to work in these areas. Because we have got to make sure these, this generation of young people don't have their lives blighted by COVID, only to have them frustrated and blighted by the impacts of climate change as we move forward. It's really interesting and it just shows that it, it feels like the scale of expectation on the sector is, is incredibly high. So not only in terms of future generations and those who are uh, you know, reaching the sort of latter end of their education, what are they going to be coming into in terms of a workplace economy post-COVID, but with the decline of those traditional energy industries that the renewable sector is intended or is uh, anticipated to try and draw some of those job losses and, and ease some of that challenge, um, which will have an impact on uh, local economies where, that, where those industries have been based. So, uh, you know, looking around the northeast and looking around Scotland, as well as having 
significant targets around increasing representation of women, increasing representation of BME, having signed up to the Armed Forces Covenant um, and being part of that transition as well. So the expectation on this sector is enormous and I think it's a kind of coming of age of the industry that it recognises that there is an awful lot of expectation placed upon its shoulders um, and that in order to achieve and fulfill those responsibilities that it is going to have to grow because where we are at the moment we can't do all of those things we we don't have the facility to do all of those things so that's why that focus from government is absolutely essential in making sure that that is driven forward and that we do expand and that we do have those opportunities and in turn i just wanted to come back on the supply chain and how that impacts on communities because that's where we really see investment and spend and smaller level apprenticeships not huge scale but smaller level apprenticeships training schemes um, and employment numbers increasing where it happens across the country and just having a big facility like the the blade manufacturer um, Siemens Gamesa in Hull has had an enormous impact. The whole city council has said it's contributed towards a 60% reduction. This is pre-COVID, by the way, uh, a 60% reduction in, in unemployment claims. And that is an absolutely phenomenal statistic. And that's not just about that blade manufacturer, but it's about everything that goes on around it. It's about increased spending power. It's about support for families. It's about um, other companies that are able to feed into that as well. So we can't underestimate just how transformative this sector can be to communities that have had traditional long-term challenges in their local economy. It can make a massive, massive difference. And, you know, living along the, the Humber estuary, I was talking to some friends the other day and we were saying probably in this area, more people than anywhere else in the country, although Andrew probably will want to disagree with me, will know about renewable energy, will know about offshore wind, because it has become so normal to talk about it in a way that in the past, perhaps petrochemicals was something that people would be really familiar with, or in you know, decades gone by, fishing would be uh, something that people would be incredibly familiar with. So it can make such a positive change and have real economic benefits, which is something that we shouldn't be shy about shouting about, I don't think. I would never disagree with you, Mel. Um, you, you, you're probably right. I, I just wanted to just talk about this thing around young people and the, next gener and the next generation and place some optimism, but also some challenges that we, I think we're likely to face in, the, in this space. So first of all, as somebody who, despite not being an engineer, spent my entire career in engineering, I think this is the first time that I've been able to walk into schools, talk to schools and talk about engineering where young people get really excited. Um, if you can't talk about future green energy opportunities and make it realistic and make it exciting and demonstrate to somebody that can be their future, then we're selling it wrong. Um, and certainly in the Northeast, we've piloted and led the way in, in enterprise advisors. So we've got an enterprise advisor in every school. We piloted what is now the National Careers Benchmark, so every young person has a bespoke career plan. And the important thing is that our sector, the green energy sector, manages to get its offering up, lined up in an equal way against everything else um, so that young people can make those choices based upon 
upon the facts. And I wanted to give you a bit of an anecdote, which is where the challenge sets in and, and probably reflects back on something that Mel said. Quite apart from the things that I said I am, I, I've also just stepped down from being a trustee of a trust academy. And, and one of our schools was in Blythe, actually the Blythe Academy. Um, and we ran, the local enterprise partnership actually ran a careers evening in Blythe. Now Blythe, as you all well know, is of course where there's the offshore renewable energy catapult have got a major facility. Um, it's got an incredibly active offshore sector beyond that and and we've attracted significant amount of investment and continue to attract significant amounts of investment into one of those coastal towns where 10 years ago i really wondered how we were going to get that town into a positive place the interesting thing for me is the young people absolutely grasped the possibilities um, they could see what was happening around them we could explain what the challenges were we, they could see how it was relevant to the work they were doing at school but the parents that we had really struggled to grasp that that was happening in their town they, they understood that it was happening i mean they could see the wind turbines but they couldn't see that that technology development and those fantastic jobs were actually on their doorsteps and we've got so much work to do i guess with the older generation to demonstrate that it is possible to do these things because the, the biggest challenge, and I spent a lot of time on the education side, it's a, a big passion of mine. The biggest challenge and the biggest failure we have is when young people get enthused and excited and they get great schooling uh, and we can deliver that in any town and give all the young people opportunities. If they go back home and their parents say, but that doesn't happen around here, it will kill it dead. So we've got a big challenge in making sure that we represent the stories, right, that we continue to over-promote our areas and our sectors. It's very convenient for national media to talk down areas like Blythe, probably like Grimsby, because they want a narrative that kind of doesn't demonstrate that regeneration. We've got to turn that around. And we've got to get people really understanding because it's not just about the technology and the opportunity and where that can happen because, as Julia's mentioned, those technologies can be developed anywhere. We might be in a unique position to be in the best place to do it, but if we don't have the talent pool coming through and continuing to drive that forward, we'll never get there. So we have to change that narrative. So I think there's a lot of optimism because young people are really grasping this for the first time I think in my lifetime and understanding the opportunities that are there on the technology and on the scientific and the engineering side. Uh, but equally, we need to make sure that they're fully supportive and the communities understand what the opportunities are. For some of our more challenged communities, the coastal communities have long been a problem for us and, and actually the coastal communities could be some of the largest beneficiaries of this new green technology. Steve, any final thoughts on the, the skills and the levelling up agenda? I suppose I'm always drawn back to the market size and the projections for the future. You know, over the next decade, we will see, even if, even if we maintain the status quo, we will see three or four times the level of jobs and acti economic activity we're seeing today. And so that's a tremendous platform. And, and that's before we start innovating our supply chain, provide even more products and services into the supply chain. So in terms of those broad shoulders that Melanie was just describing, that the industry has to take the burden of the next generation on, I'd say it's a tremendous opportunity. And 
and it's, it's, it's there for the taking. It's not a, I don't see it as a big burden. I see it as a, almost an open goal that we've got here. Thanks. I'd, I'd like to move on now to a topic which I think you, you've actually all, all mentioned this morning, and that's the, the challenge of the, the energy integration. So obviously we're looking to accelerate our, our transition towards renewables, and, and I think we all agree that, that that's absolutely vital if we're going to meet our net zero targets. But how, how do we tackle the energy integration challenge? And are there pilot projects that, sh that we should be exploring? And in a post-COVID world, are there new opportunities to progress the energy integration that we perhaps didn't have six months ago? If, if I could come to you first, Julia, on the, the energy integration challenge. Well, I think one of the things we should be, we should be getting a, a real move on with is upgrading the grid, both nationally and in terms of, of distribution networks. Clearly, we're going to have a grid that uh, is going to have a lot more variable power on it. Andrew has highlighted the importance of digital um, and we're going to need a grid that is increasingly much more intelligent and can cope with, um, well it already copes with variable demand, but, but copes with variable, variable demand in, through some clever demand management, integrates all of those, hopefully all of those electric vehicles that can be, will be, well in fact will be plugged in for probably 80-85% or whatever of their lives. So we really have got to make this grid work effectively so actually we build as little infrastructure as possible so it's as economic and effective as possible uh, and we need to be making sure those we're getting those business models in place that will reward people for plugging in their electric vehicle at certain times and not using you know helping with the demand management not using electricity at certain times uh, and also thinking about how we're going to cope with storage and of course hydrogen can be a hugely important part of that we can be moving forward already on, I think, the, the grid strengthening and indeed National Grid um, has talked about its plans, but I think we should be accelerating those. I think we really need a strategy for hydrogen in the UK. Uh, almost every other country in Europe has one, Taiwan has one, China has one, uh, Australia has one. You know, you name a country now, they have a hydrogen strategy. I think we need a hydrogen strategy which looks at the role it can play. And um, based on that, um, looks at the kind of demonstration and the, and the scale-up activities that we need. And one of the things I would really like to see that I know Lord Stern is very engaged in talking to the Treasury about um, is some kind of national investment bank, which I think touches on some of the points Andrew was making. Not only do we need the right, um, the right regulations in place um, and the right policies, but a, a national investment bank where the government crowds in other investors by demonstrating that it's prepared to put its own money into companies and projects because these are the companies and projects that are going to help us deliver the policy for the future. That worked really effectively in helping kickstart offshore wind, obviously alongside the contracts for difference, alongside some, some very clever policy as well. But actually, I think we need that much more broadly across the green recovery agenda. And I hope that we will have an announcement of something like that, something that's a bit more like a KFW or um, some of the, uh, you know, the national regeneration banks, because I think that could be a real help to innovation and to green recovery in the UK. Steve, would you like to come in on that point? I, I agree. You know, clearly creating um, the right investment framework that has the right level of risk appetite for these technologies is super important. 
I, I'm actually fairly relaxed about the, the technologies per se. I, I think we've identified many of the technology building blocks we need to transition to, to a low carbon economy. One of the things that keeps me awake at night is actually the level of alignment that is needed to get everyone on the same page to allow these large transformational projects around hydrogen economy, around demand side management, or linking EVs to um, the generation profile of the country. To me, there's, there's, a, there's a big alignment piece that needs to happen. And I think some of the pilot projects you alluded to, Lee, I think um, we've got to make sure that not only they're proving and de-risking and validating technologies, but they are bringing all of the stakeholders onto the same page. And that, to me, is perhaps one of the biggest hurdles that we've got to solve here. And so I'd like to see that come forward in tandem with the sorts of markets and commercial support mechanisms that Julia talked around the investment side there. I'm just keen to come on to the big transformational technologies at the moment in, in offshore renewables. And I, and I think probably green hydrogen, floating wind and accelerating next generation turbine technology are probably three of the, of the biggest transformational technologies that we're seeing at the moment and, and have the ability to drive forward this green recovery. Steve, if I could get your thoughts on those initially, and then Andrew, if I could bring you in and just ask where you see those opportunities for businesses and a levelling up agenda and, and the regional agenda that you touched on. Steve, if I could come to you first. I think what you've mentioned there, Leah, the three, what I would call grand challenges for the, the offshore wind sector. Um, so how do we continue the, the drive for bigger and bigger turbines and you know, grapple with the, the challenges that faces in terms of making sure we're keeping the weight down, making sure we're meeting the, the extreme limits of um, large bearings, large manufacturing technology. I think also, how do we then make those turbines float? You know, we are going to run out of choice seabed that is in 30 to 40 meters of water depth. And how can we unlock large swathes of the ocean where we've got, you know, 60, 70, 100 and beyond meters of water depth? So how can we bring forward floating platforms to put wind turbines on? And then finally, how do we integrate the vast amounts of electricity that we're generating offshore? Um, we don't envisage a short-term problem in that regard, and it may be actually we need the hydrogen economy for heat and transport before we need it to solve the integration challenge of offshore wind. Um, but certainly it's, it's one of those things that the offshore wind is thinking of. You know, you know, how do we deal with the fact that the wind doesn't blow all the time? So they're the big challenges. And I think the, the thing that really excites me is that we've got an opportunity here for the UK to enter the supply chain in new areas through technological merit, as opposed to forced entry through things like mandated supply chain plans. So how can we use our innovative manufacturing processes, our technologies around engineering for subsea engineering? Um, how can we use that to make the UK the best place to go for um, stiff, lightweight blades or nacelles that have been manufactured through additive manufacturing or carbon fiber drive shafts rather than uh, forged steel drive shafts or bearings that are made of ceramic and therefore weigh half the weight. These sorts of things are areas that actually the UK is really good at in different sectors. And I see a real opportunity to bring those into the offshore wind sector. And I think that could be the way that we boost our UK content from something around the mid forties today to um, something much higher through the engineering hardware. Andrew, if I could ask you to come in. 
I agree with Stephen. I, I, I think we're talking about two challenges here. One is generation and the other is storage. And those two things, you know, I guess the third one being how do you integrate together? Uh, but just picking up on Stephen's theme, you know, actually it should play to the UK strength. So first of all, one of the frustrations I've had for a long time on the, on the offshore wind sector has been because you can see it, everybody concentrates on the towers and the blades and everybody forgets about what happens below the surface. And, and the UK is over 50% of the global subsea industry, obviously heavily driven out of oil and gas. And, you know, we are world technology leaders in that sector and that space. Um, and the opportunity, therefore, to transfer the knowledge and learning into the offshore wind sector is, is huge if we can just capture that capability and that knowledge. We've had some traditional financial challenges in doing that because the oil and gas sector has actually been a fair, fairly lucrative market for those capabilities. And, and clearly now, uh, with the growth that we've all been talking about, people are seeing we can replicate the same opportunity in the offshore wind space. So I think there's, there's that. If you then look at, we were talking about blade technology. So if I come above surface, oh, sorry, I should say subsurface first. Of course, laying cables, the further you get off offshore, the, the more cables you want to lay. And again, you know, we are the global leaders, you know, subsea technology, subsea robotic technology. You know, my former company, SMD, something like 90% of the world's underwater trenching robots were built on the banks of the Tyne in either SMD or one of the associated businesses. Um, and it was world leader in telecoms as well as offshore wind, as well as pipeline technology. And these things are not necessarily seen because it all happens below the water. So we... We, we have that going. And then blade technologies, you know, we, you know, the UK is a world leader actually in, in, in wing technologies. We are the wing technology center for Airbus. Again, another of my former company, Spirit Air Systems, the UK headquarters has been in Presswick. Uh, we're making the leading edges for just about every large commercial aircraft family, whether they were Boeing or Airbus. It is something where we're unique. Um, and again, transferring that knowledge and capability across into the offshore wind sector gives us fantastic opportunity. So I think, you know, for me, these technologies are there. Um, I agree with Stephen. Actually, technically, we're not that far away from knowing what's needed to be done, but we need to bring it together in a smart way. And one of my challenges within government is how do you, and this is a, I, Julie will no doubt laugh at this, but how do you get different areas of government to work across departments. So I'll give you a good example of this. Transport for the North, I have a great pleasure of sitting on the Transport for the North board. We'll be investing in rail infrastructure across the North to the tune of many billions, as will HS2. How can we utilize that platform to actually be smarter about bringing green technologies. Uh, about two weeks ago, Hitachi and Hyperdrive in the Northeast announced a partnership on battery trains. Um, a battery train will allow you not to have to electrify lines, which are more difficult to electrify. Um, but how do we drive governments? How do we get the Department for Transport working with anybody who's working on the climate side to really actually have a holistic view and say, look, if we bring that together, we can actually use this as a test bed, which we can then demonstrate to the rest of the world how to do it, because we are the leaders in this, you know, we, but we just have to be smarter about how we bring it together. You have to think about the markets in different ways if we're really going to capture it. So, you know, I, I agree with Stephen that technically it feels like we're close, but there's still a lot to do about integrating all our capability together. I'd just like to reinforce Andrew's message. I mean, I'd written down earlier, you know, cross-government thinking and cross-government working. A similar example to the thing he was talking about was the, the challenge with, with hydrogen 
is that we have to create an industry which means creating supply and demand concurrently because nobody will invest in making it until somebody is going to use it and nobody will invest in the technologies to use it until somebody's somebody's producing it and uh, we had a meeting with quasi kwateng where um joe bamford from right bus was there and he pointed out that uh, he's desperate to be building hydrogen buses in northern ireland meanwhile dft have announced an initi a big initiative for the funding of electric buses you know so can they talk to each other can we make sure that becomes a coherent policy that enables us to make Hull or Grimsby you know a hydrogen city <laughs> because you've got the offshore wind and the electrolysis there to do it another one for me is that we um, we maintain shipyards in the UK um, because occasionally we want to build a frigate or we need to build a um, an aircraft carrier well actually if we really get into um, floating wind we could be getting those shipyards to be building the platforms for, for floating wind, which would keep them going so that when we need the next frigate or carrier, we still have that capacity in the UK. It needs that integrated government thinking. And that's what it would be good to see this climate cabinet that has now met, I think, at least once. It would be good to see them really knocking that, really knocking the heads of government departments together um, to make sure we absolutely make this a success right across the UK economy. And Melanie, just sort of building on that in terms of wider policy support that you would like to see? First of all, I have to say, I love the idea that where communities have got either uh, any kind of renewable innovation or technology development or um, infrastructure or manufacture, that those communities do benefit in some way. So, for example, becoming a, a hydrogen zone um, it sounds really exciting because I think that that helps then with the conversation with that older generation that says, well, what does it do for us? Well, actually, you know, we are um, improving your local transportation networks or whatever it might be. I think that that's really exciting. In terms of policy support, I think that we are asking for uh, support around port infrastructure. Uh, with those ever increasing size of turbines, we need our ports to be ready for that. Otherwise, they will go to more established ports, probably. Um, on mainland Europe and we'll lose out even on that, that we need some, some more support for exports. We've already heard about the kind of intellectual innovation, that intellectual kind of knowledge economy that we have that is absolutely sought after across the world. But if we can get some of our technologies as well, I thought it was interesting hearing the Prime Minister talking about the fact that we have some really great innovation, but then it gets bought up by other companies who go on to develop it and it becomes, I don't know, an American company or a French company, whatever it might be. Wouldn't it be great to have more of that developed so that we've got British companies uh, involved in, the, in, in taking through that innovation all the way through? And that comes into that co-investment around research and development perhaps the increased role that Catapult can play in taking through those innovation ideas going beyond just pilots and tests, but actually starting to scale up. There are, there are some very key things that government could do that I think would support the, the sector enormously. Thank you very much. I'd like to invite closing remarks from the panel. Steve, if I could start with you, any closing remarks you'd like to make? If, if we've learned one thing through this sort of COVID crisis, that I guess we're still finding our way through, is that society can pivot overnight and it can change its field of view um, and its, its perception of things quite quickly. Um, and you know, there's been loads of examples of people valuing natural capital a lot more, for example, 
and I think one of the challenges we've had up until now is the societal acceptance of new low carbon technologies or the prospect of government putting big subsidies into wind turbines, for example, to, to provide more shade. And I think what we might see is a big change in the public's perception on these things. And so I think now probably we're pushing against an open door in terms of climate change with a broader section of the population. So that's a good thing. I guess one of the things I think we need actually is to look at the, the good example of the sector deal that was brought together for offshore wind, which effectively created a huge level of alignment and support across industry and the public sector. And I think we need something similar for, for net zero and certainly for the hydrogen economy. So that route map or that deal between the public and private sector that gets everyone on the same page. So we know, okay, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to do it. And that line of sight just means that everyone, particularly the private sector, know where we're going and where the opportunities are. And I'd, you know, I'd really love to see that come forward. And I think the catapult's got a big role to play in, in bringing that to life. My message is simple. Um, the green energy revolution's happening and it's happening now. And if we look at where the digital revolution kind of found a home in Silicon Valley and, and software found its home in, in, in Seattle, I think, why not here? I used to say, why not here and why not now? Uh, we are now, it's happening, but we have to move really, really quickly. But if we do move quickly, there's no doubt about it that the UK could be the global centre of a really, really important sector that is going to affect our future generations. And I think there's nothing more that we need to, to, to say to kind of focus people's attentions. Uh, I suppose closing thoughts would be to uh, kind of ask for, for government to really try and have it at the heart of everything and have an economic recovery being a green economic recovery, not uh, separating the two, which kind of comes right back to Julia's opening comments. Um, I think that, you know, having it at every single level of our operation across all areas of government with green audits taken uh, seriously to see where we can improve things and speed up the change, I think would be beneficial for everybody. With COP26 coming up next year in Glasgow with the UK in the chair and the UK needing to influence the rest of the world that this is the right way to go, we have got an opportunity over the next year and a, year and a quarter or whatever to really show we are committed to this low carbon transformation, low carbon recovery in the UK. There's a lot going to be hanging on our Chancellor's budget to demonstrate that we're really going to make this happen. So, fingers crossed. So, I'd like to thank Baroness Brown, Andrew Hodgson, Melanie Owen and Steve Wyatt for taking part in today's episode. We hope that you, the listeners, enjoyed the episode and that you'll join us for upcoming episodes where we'll drill into some of the research and innovation areas that we discussed today. In the meantime, you can also find more news and views on our website, ore.catapult.org.uk and by following us on Twitter and LinkedIn, at Ori Catapult. 